Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Second Bayou Tapestry by M. D. Vickers. The scene was an antique shop in Rill, North Wales. There were, at this moment in time, two people within, one of them being the proprietor. The other was a Mr. Harry Gladstone, sixty-eight years old, retired historian. He was currently sliding out an enormous-looking volume from the midst of a haphazard stack. The words on the spine read, The Battle of Hastings. Gladstone randomly scanned pages, deciding instantly that he would purchase it. The price was marked on a sticker on the front cover. Accruing a five-pound note from his wallet, the former history book writer made his way towards the pay-desk. The book nestled under his left arm. The owner peered benignly over his narrow glasses. A transaction then took place. "'You're interested in this particular period of history, then?' the wild-haired purveyor of antiques suddenly voiced. "'Indeed, very much so,' returned Gladstone. "'Used to write books on it myself.' He was handed a robust bag containing his purchase, and a pound coin in change. There was no receipt. Really? What name did you write under? My own, Harold Gladstone. As well as a couple of books, I also wrote pieces for journals, magazines, and the like. The elderly gentleman behind the desk was sporting a concentrated expression on his face, as if trying to recall the name. It didn't seem to be coming, so he shook his head dismissively, and changed the direction of the conversation. I have something downstairs that you will find very fascinating, I'm sure, if you'd care to look. Gladstone, his interest immediately fired, returned, Lead the way. A trap-door was consequently opened, revealing a ladder leading down into the depths. They descended. Upon reaching the bottom first, the antique dealer, his name having been expressed as Wilf Cooper, flicked on a bare bulb in the middle of the—well, a cellar, really— it was heaped high with bric-a-brac of all descriptions. Gladstone was directed towards a set of drawers, over near the far wall. "'In here it is,' Cooper rasped, sounding slightly out of breath. The long top drawer was pulled gently out to its fullest extent. A reading lamp on top of the drawers was clicked on, the focused area of light revealing just what it was that was lurking inside the hollow rectangle of timber. It was a material similar to canvas— the depiction on it slowly becoming apparent to a transfixed Harry Gladstone. It seemed to be a sort of condensed version of the Bayou Tapestry, about six feet long by three in height. The layout was dissimilar, but not too much so. "'How old is it?' inquired Gladstone, snatching a glimpse of Cooper's haggard profile. "'It was made some four hundred years after the original, so around the late fourteen hundreds, early fifteen. How did you attain it, and where from? The historian was finding it difficult, keeping the excitement from his voice. Those are questions I'd prefer not to answer, was the rather sinister reply. What about value, then? It must be worth a bit, surely. I've never had it valued, to be honest, Cooper returned. I paid quite a bit for it, but I've no idea of its current worth. His demeanour had changed, Gladstone observed. From being chirpy and fervent, he now seemed apprehensive, and a little withdrawn. "'It's a fantastic piece of work,' 
almost as good in quality as the original. How long have you had it? Quite a while now. I just keep it down here, out of the way. That's why we'll let you have it, if you want. Harry Gladstone thought at first that he'd misheard the man. Have it? For how much? It's yours for free. All I ask is that you look after it. Put it somewhere safe, out of the way. He stressed this last remark intensely, and with an unmistakable urgency in his tone. Are you sure? Gladstone was experiencing a mild mental turmoil. Could he really take this relic from his companion without any form of cash payment or barter? However, Wilf Cooper seemed the sort of person who would not, under any circumstances, assuage from a fixed mindset. He decided to go along with it. I mean, thanks a lot, as long as you're definitely sure. Quite sure, Cooper responded, proceeding to withdraw the ancient cloth. Just remember what I said. Store it away somewhere. Somewhere safe. Because of the light, you mean? Gladstone queried. That, and other things, was all Cooper would expound. Two of the side-edge protectors on the tapestry had to be slid off before it was neatly and carefully rolled up. It was then slipped into the bag that contained the book. Gladstone thanked him once again, and they both mounted the ladder a second time. The historian voiced his farewell, and headed for the door. Opening it with a somewhat vigorous yank, he stepped out onto the street. The antique shop owner's parting reiteration of somewhere safe merged with the oddly distorted bell ring as the door began to close. In any case, Gladstone had already been given sufficient previous warnings, you could say. On his way home, Gladstone pondered over the possibility that it could be a hoax. If it was from the period Cooper had stated, why on earth would he have given it away? Yet it certainly looked authentic, perfect aging over nearly five centuries. He would have some tests done on it, for verification. Until then, he would mount it on his study wall. It was always gloomy in there anyway. A wonderful masterpiece like this didn't deserve to be entombed in furniture. Not at all. Maybe, in a few days' time, he would come down from his high, and start thinking a bit more rationally. For now, his head was too full of his recent acquisition to contemplate anything else. He replaced the two side protectors on the top and bottom, realizing that the work wasn't as dissimilar to its predecessor as he'd first thought. Suspended from the top rail was a crude piece of string, obviously to hang it up. After a sturdy nail had been driven into the wall, Gladstone lovingly maneuvered the twine over it, sliding the tapestry slowly down so that it finally hung straight. Stepping back to the opposing wall, he gave it an engrossed scrutiny, from the arrows hurtling through the air to the Normans and Saxons themselves. A fierce conflict was in progress, the intricate threadwork managing to capture all the essence of that notorious eleventh-century battle. It was to be in the early hours of the following morning that the true nature of the tapestry fully exerted itself. Gladstone's eyes snapped open, just as the digital display on his bedside clock flicked on to 2.02 a.m. Strange. He never usually awoke at this time. He was an incredibly deep sleeper. Then a clamoring became apparent, emanating, he reasoned, from the adjoining room, his study. Feeling the familiar escalating heartbeat sensation, he hastily adorned his robe and slippers, distractedly flattening his hair with both hands. Selecting a good, 
thick candle holder from on top of the drawers, he quietly snicked open the bedroom door and advanced onto the landing. Yes, the study without a doubt. That sounded like the drumming of horses' hooves. Screams of agony next, warlike cries of triumph accompanying these. What on earth was happening? Gladstone extended a nerve-wracked hand and shoved open the door of the study. His left hand was holding aloft the candle holder, ready to strike if necessary. In the same movement, he clicked on the light switch. The tapestry was the first thing he looked at, and that's all it needed to ascertain the source of the disturbance. Open-mouthed, the disbelieving historian walked over to the embroidery, as if in a semi-awake dream. Although the figures on the tapestry weren't moving in any conspicuous way, there were subtle indications present that refused to be accepted in Gladstone's mind. The entire hanging would occasionally twitch and ripple, seemingly by itself. The incarcerated woolen images could be seen to be displaying the merest hints of a movement, so slight that it was questionable whether they'd actually switched positions at all. But it was all too apparent to a pale and awe-stricken Harold Gladstone. Transfixed, he shuffled ever nearer to the haunting image, the candle-holder slipping from his grasp. The noise was now almost deafening, and the movements—they resembled the effect given by the repeated tiltings of a holographic-type image—were becoming more discernible. The arrow that flew towards the historian's shocked face would have barely registered. Penetrating his left eye, it ploughed effortlessly into his brain and pierced the back of his skull, quivering briefly. He fell loosely backwards against the far wall, his other eye locked wide open. The tapestry had resumed its air of innocence once more. Upon discovery of the body, an examination was also conducted on the arrow itself. It was found to be of identical design to weaponry used by William the Conqueror and his army in the Hastings Battle of 1066. Further tests dated the arrow to this period conclusively. Evidence of the tapestry's macabre nature came to light soon after. It was immediately taken down and burned as a result. <laughs>